there's any questions, I'm always open to answering those because uh, I won't answer all the questions next week, I'm sure, either. So that said, let's look at the end of 1 Thessalonians this morning in chapter 5. One of the key verses of 1 Thessalonians is found in verse uh, 9 and 10 of chapter 5, and it says this, God did not appoint us to wrath, but instead to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. So our hope is in a life of living together with him for eternity, and that life that we live in the presence of Jesus, with him in our lives, doesn't start on the day that we pass and go on in the next life. It starts here. So that whether we wake, the idea of being born again, actually truly alive and awake, or whether we die and go on to be with him, either way, the goal is to be in Jesus' presence forever. He's our Savior, He's our Lord, He's our Creator, and uh, He did all of this for fellowship with us. He created us from the very beginning because He wanted to interact with His creation. We are unlike any other being that's been created. We're unlike dogs. Although dogs can be very friendly, they were not made for fellowship with God. Now, they interact with God. God provides for them uh, food. He provides for all the animals of the field. He provides for them something to eat, but he's also provided them for something else to eat, you know. But we have been given this triune nature, body, soul, and spirit to interact with God in a very special way that is above all of the other creation, that he desires to speak to us and interact with us and communicate his desire and his will, and actually to work out his purposes through us. How amazing is that, that we are actually made to be tools in the hand of our Creator? And so as we see that, he said that God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's speaking to this Thessalonican church who has experienced persecution. He's speaking to a group of people that could very easily doubt that God does care about the things that they're going through. And as he communicates this to them. He's communicating it for several reasons. Remember I said that chapter 4 through 5 is really, could be summarized in how the church should walk. How the church, remember he talked about in chapter 1 how they were born as a church, how they began, how it started with individuals being born again and becoming saved individuals and disciples of Jesus. And in uh, chapter 2, it was all about how Paul had nurtured them like a mother and a father nurture their children and bring them to maturity. And then in chapter 3, he talked about how the church was established on the Word of God, how it, it was growing roots and it had a foundation that it was built upon. We just sang about the cornerstone of our foundation, Jesus Christ. And if you've ever seen an old building that has the date that it was made, it's always put on the cornerstone, and it's because that peace is what gives that building structure. The cornerstone is, is, if it's not solid, if it's not cut exactly straight and perfect, the rest of the building will be compromised in its strength, and it won't stand over the test of time. And so Jesus being our cornerstone and the Word of God being our foundation, we now have this faith that cannot be shaken if we will walk in it. So born, nurtured, established, now, here's how we ought to walk. And I say ought to walk because if you know Christians at all, any of them, myself included, 
many times we don't walk in the faith. We ascribe to it in our heads. We've been changed by it in our hearts, but we still have areas that we all are weak in. And one of the reasons that we are the, the style of church that we are, and one of the reasons that we teach the, the entire Word of God, is because we need the whole Bible to be a whole Christian. If God said it and it's in His Word, then we need to know what it says so that we can grow and so we can understand what is the will of God. And in two times in this book, Paul writes, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is God's will. This is his heart's desire. This is his plan for his people. We are not anymore our own people, but we are a called out assembly. And that's what the church is. The church is a called out assembly of believers. Not a gathering, but an assembly. We are all fit and joined together like bricks on a building. And when we are all fully assembled and in our right places, using our own strengths and weaknesses to God's advantage, what happens is that God produces this building that the whole world can see as a testimony of what He can do with a bunch of broken down bricks with a bunch of broken down stones. We're little stones formed together with Jesus as the cornerstone, and we are a testimony to the world of salvation and redemption and a new life. And so Paul writes in chapter 4 and 5 how the church should walk, and he starts in verse 1 through 8 of chapter 4 talking about how we should walk in holiness. Verse 3, he says, abstain from sexual immorality. The word for sexual immorality in the Greek is actually the word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography. And that word means perversion. Anything that is straight, God created it. What Satan does is he twists it and he makes it something it was never meant to be. Uh, For instance, uh, the marriage relationship. It was never meant to be uh, what we have made it. Now we can marry uh, Males with males, females with females. But if you look, as it was in the beginning, God made man and woman to be co-responders, two equal parts coming together, making a whole. And as a result of that, Ephesians 5 tells us that that very relationship is to symbolize what Christ is to the church. He is the husband, sacrificially giving of his life to lay down his life for his bride. His bride is the church. And so all Satan has to do is come in and say, well, that's what old school people thought, but that's not really the will of God. We can make it whatever we want. But when he does that, it's not to chip away at us, it's to chip away at God. If Satan can't get to God and stop his purposes, he'll mess with the people of God and start to pervert his ways before them. And next thing you know, that picture of the bride of Christ and Christ being the husband and wife is completely blurred. We no longer see it for what it is because marriage isn't one thing anymore. And so what Paul says is that we should abstain from sexual immorality, perversion. And then he says in verse 7, God did not call us to uncleanness, or the word being impurity, but to holiness. And another part in the New Testament, he says, without holiness, no one can see the Lord. If we are truly holy people following God's ways, it's never to point to us. It's always so people can see God himself. 
And then in verse 9 through 10, he says we are to walk in harmony or in unity with one another. Uh, In one portion in the New Testament, it actually says they will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. Now, how many people do you know that will say, I don't want to have anything to do with God in his church because his people are always backbiting each other. They don't even like each other. Well, another way that Satan's able to get in and stop the cause of God because we're not loving one another. And he says, concerning brotherly love, in verse 9, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you are doing so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. Not just in their church, but in the other churches in their region, they showed love for one another. They interacted with one another. They didn't die on our doctrinal hills that churches do. They interacted with one another, claiming and believing that Christ is the cornerstone and that we are all works in progress. And so they weren't little niche churches saying, hey, we're not for them. But we urge you, he says, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you love one another and that you continually grow in this habit or this practice of loving one another. Then verse 11 through 12, he says, we should walk in honesty. He says, live a quiet life of faithfulness, Don't have idle hands and minds. I think that's one of the things that we have a problem with in our day and age is that many of us in the church, I'm not talking about the world. The world's going to do what it does. But we know Jesus, and yet we take our time and our efforts and we take our our finances, and because we don't feel called to do anything specifically, we become idle and we do all kinds of things. We... we, um, we, we're not busy about the Lord's business, so we're busybodies and we're rumor mongers. But he says, provide for and work for your family so that you will have no lack and so that you will have a good testimony towards non-believers. And if we'll use the resources God's given us, many times God's really providing more than we need so that we can be a blessing to others. And I don't care what income bracket you're in, God always provides more than we really need if we're using those things wisely. So he says um, in verse, uh, chapter, verse 13 of chapter 4 through chapter 5, verse 11, he says we are to walk in hope. What is our hope? What truly is our hope? Uh, my hope many days is not focused on the hope that Christ has given me. My hope cannot be that my job will always be there. God's already shown me several times. I'm going to take that thing away if you put your hope in it. Uh, my hope can't be in whether or not my children cooperate. Uh, that's a false hope, right? <laughs> my hope can't be in my financial circumstance always being what I think it should be. My hope has to be in the fact that Christ loves me. That never changes. That he'll never leave me or forsake me. And that he's not going to leave me here forever. He's coming back. My hope should be anchored to those promises that Jesus has made. These are the things that we can take to the bank even more than we can a promise of an income tax return, right? We're not at that time, but uh, I heard a guy say one time, he said, and it cut to the quick on me because I've done this. He said, uh, he said, this, he was a minister and he was, he was uh, trusting the Lord to provide for his needs and you know, many times he had like a $200 car. This was back in the 70s. And then he also, um, he, he said, you know, if God's provided for me what I need, then I need to be thankful. So he had a thing of peanut butter and some crackers. 
He's just eating, he got to the point where he's just eating spoonfuls of peanut butter, you know, when you scrape out the, the canister, and I don't know about you guys, but I love peanut butter, so even when I have plenty of food, I'm scraping that thing out, you know, it's peanut butter, come on, protein, and it's tasty, and so if you have a peanut allergy, I'm sorry you have to miss out on that, but he said, I was scraping the bottom of the peanut thing, and he said, but I knew God was going to provide, and then he said, uh, he said he got that letter in the mail that said, hey, here's, here's what your income tax return is going to be. And he's just, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so glad. And he goes, he goes then the Lord kind of touched my heart. And he goes, are you believing that that check's going to come here? Or are you trusting me for it? And he goes, I wasn't trusting the Lord. I just knew that the federal government promised me something in the form of a check. And so I took it to the bank. And he said, but my hope was in the financial gain that the that the the government had promised me, and you just can't bank on that. Even though that promise is there, it, it can always be taken away. And so anyway, my point is, is he says, we have to live in hope. We have to live daily with the comfort that Jesus' imminent return has been promised, and it is going to come soon. He promised to come back for us and his church, and as children of light, we are to, in the meantime, be ready for his return. If we really want to go with him, you'd think we would spend our time getting ready to go with him. You know, if we really believe he's coming back, are we ready? And in 1 John chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 2, this is what the apostle John wrote. Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, Therefore, in light of this information, he says, Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. And everyone who has this hope in him does what? He purifies himself just as he, Jesus, is pure. And so Jesus is pure. He saved us and he's making us righteousness. He's given us his righteousness and he's making us righteous. But we also have a responsibility to walk in that righteousness and let him transform us. And what I wrote down for you uh, in my notes here is actually what the New Living Translation it says. It says, dear friends, we are already God's children. That should be comforting. We are his children. He won't leave us alone as orphans. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. So he's promised to transform us throughout this life. But then he says, and all who have this eager expectation, I like that. Everyone who has this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as Christ is pure. And so what I wrote down was, eager expectation of Jesus' return should have us eager to be ready for it. You know, if someone tells you, I'm going to take you to the baseball game, and, and you're all fired up about it, guess what you're doing? You are clearing your schedule. You are gathering all of your St. Louis Cardinals gear, if you're a Cardinals fan. Cindy, I know you're ready. And, and you are ready when the car gets there, right? You're not kind of dawdling around and kicking and uh, I think I'm going to sleep in this morning. You're ready. You're fired up, especially if you tell a young child. They, my daughter, 
Yesterday morning, I told her, we're going to go to breakfast. I had some other things to do, but I wanted to go on a little date with my daughter. I didn't have to wake her up. She was awake. She, I went up there. I thought she was still sleeping. She was just laying there staring at the ceiling. I'm like, what are you doing? She goes, well, I was waiting for you to come get me. You said you were going to come get me. And so I'm ready. And she, you know what she said as soon as she got out of bed? There's my clothes. Let's put them on. You know, she was fired up. She wanted to be clothed and ready to go and do what I promised her to do. And many times we know that God has promised to come and get us, but we don't spend our time getting ready for his return because we don't truly believe it's going to happen. Are you truly believing that Christ is coming back for us? And if so, are you adorning yourself in righteousness? Are you asking him, Lord, purify me, get me ready for this thing? Because the bride we are the bride, and he said he's coming back. In the Old Testament, if someone was a Jewish person was going to get married, it was not like us today, what he would do is he would see this woman, he would want to marry her, and he would go and talk to the, to the father, and he would go and he would go providing a dowry. He would pay the, the, the dad. Here's the dowry. Here's the down payment. And he, he would come with this. He would sacrifice in a way. He would provide. But then in the meantime, he would he would make a promise, I'm coming back. So he would come, and they wouldn't get married right then. That makes sense to us, right? We can relate. But he said, I would go, and this man would come, and he would say, I'm going to prepare a place so that when we get married, we'll have a place to live. And he would usually build a house onto the side of his parents' house. That's odd to us, right? But that's how they would do it. So they would, he would say, I'm going to marry you. I'm promising. And then they're at that point, when he says that, they're legally bound together. They've not consummated the marriage, but they are legally bound together. From this point forward, if he says, I want to back out of this, this marriage relationship, they have to get a divorce. They're already promised to one another. And so when he would go, he would go to prepare a place, and you don't know when he's coming back. It could take him months. It could take him a week. Depends on how much preparation. But the promise is, when I come back, we're getting married. It's happening. And so he's made the promise, he's going to make the provision, and when he comes back, the wedding ceremony will take place. And this wasn't just like, hey, I'm, you know, 20-minute ceremony. This was seven days of celebration, at the end of which they would consummate the marriage. And so we, in the same way, have been promised by our Savior, by our husband. He's already paid the bride price. He's paid it with his blood, and he's left to go and prepare a place. Remember, he told his disciples, I go from you to go and prepare a place. He's been building it for 2,000 years. How great do you think it's going to be? And he's building it on his father's house. And he's promised that when it's ready, he's going to come back for us, and he's going to take us, and then the wedding will happen, and the marriage will be consummated. Not like a husband and a wife, but we will be with him, we will be like him, we'll be prepared for him like a bride is for her groom, and then we will be with him forever. And so that's the promise. And so I kind of got off on that, but I was just like, this is an amazing picture of what Jesus has promised in the Old Testament wedding ceremonies. And to this day, the Jewish wedding ceremonies are like that for those who are devout Jews. And so in in verse 11 of chapter 5, he says this, therefore, since this is the case, he says, comfort each other and strengthen one another just as you also are doing. That's what the word edify means, to strengthen. 
It's what we do to an old barn when it's fallen over. We, we get a bunch of wood and we start building onto that thing to, to strengthen it. And so what Christ says is, I, I need you to get rid of all the old boards. Let me put up all new boards and build you up again. He says, therefore, in the light of my coming, in the light of Jesus' coming, comfort each other and strengthen one another just as you also are doing. So he, he starts to give uh, ways that they can strengthen one another. And so today I call this walking in helpfulness. And as the body of Christ, we are called to help one another. My job is to teach the word and be faithful to pray for one of you guys. I was convicted about that this week because I got all the way to Thursday. I hadn't done that. You know, life gets busy. But my job as a pastor and my calling is to oversee the flock of God and to pray for them. Not to overlord them, not to lord over them as many would, but as to oversee as an under-shepherd watching the flock of God and praying for them. And, and, and so as God's called me to do that, that's my portion. But here's what we do in American Christianity. We show up to church to get. We show up to church to consume like a bunch of locusts. We come in, we suck everything up, and we leave. I'm not saying that's what you guys do. I'm just saying we can have a tendency to do that, and I've been guilty to come and to take and to take and then to leave. But the body of Christ is not made up of one giver and all takers. The body of Christ is made up for each one of us to have something to give and something to receive. Paul over and over wrote in his letters, I wish that I could come to you so that I could impart something to you to add to your faith. What do we have a desire to impart to others to add to their faith? There should be something. It won't be the same thing. And, and our minds, our, our gift won't measure up to somebody else's. That's not what it's about. It's about using what God has given us. Not what we wish we had, but what God has given us to impart to others, to build them up and to strengthen and to comfort them. And so he says, he gives several examples, and we'll kind of hit the high points. But in verse 12, um, let's read through verse 14. He says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. He says, be at peace among yourselves. We exhort you. The word could be transliterated to encourage, strong encouragement. We exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly. Comfort those who are faint-hearted. Uphold the weak and be patient with all. He says, here's ways that you can help one another. He says, first of, all, first of all, we urge you to recognize the, those who labor among you. Those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So there's two groups. There's those who labor among you. And we are to, all to be co-laborers in Christ. Each one of us has been given something by the Lord to do for his glory and for his kingdom growth. And so he says, recognize and know. How do you know somebody? How do you know somebody? Do you know somebody by um, knowing about them? You know, we're in the day and age where you can know a lot of people. I mean, I got 900 friends on Facebook, but do I know them? No. I know some of them. You know people by being around them. How do you get to know Jesus? You listen to him. You know him through the testimony of others. And you know him by spending time with him. And so if that's the case, we know each other. We can recognize one another by being around one another. That's why we give opportunities for fellowship. It's not just something else to show up to and feel obligated to. 
It's to get to know one another, to build relationships that, whether you realize it or not, are going to last for eternity. You know, how many times do you think we're going to sit around in a circle and tell stories about stuff that happened while we were still able to lead people to Christ? In heaven, we don't get to lead people to Christ anymore. It's going to be talking about the good old days. It's going to be going, hey, did you get to talk to Paul the Apostle? That guy does have a pretty crooked nose, you know? I'm, praise the Lord, the Lord healed that leaky eye he had, you know? Or, man, check out Noah. That guy doesn't even look very strong, and he built a whole boat in 100 years? Man, that guy endured. Hey, there's Job over there, you know? But we think about those relationships. I hope you do. I hope you look forward to seeing the Hall of Fame. You know, we're going to get to meet Zacchaeus. He's, not, he's a wee little man. You know, he got climbed up in the tree and got to see Jesus and got invited to have a meal with Jesus at his house. How cool. How frightening. Can you imagine if Jesus invites himself to your house? You know? But that's the reality. And in many cases, there'll be stories of, you know, when I've gotten to go to India, there's been brothers and sisters in the Lord I've gotten to meet and to be a blessing to. They were more of a blessing to me. I feel like the Lord flew me over there to go, hey, here's some perspective. You know, these people are persecuted over here. These people are, they got nothing. They don't have running water and they still love Jesus. Would you love Jesus if you didn't have running water? And so as you meet these people, I have to look at them as I leave and go, I won't ever get to see you again. You know, I'm reading Tim Tebow's book, Shaken, right now. And he, he was born in Manila in the Philippines. Did you, did you guys know that? His parents were missionaries. When he was 15 years old, he got to share the gospel in this village. And they shut down the village. Like, they all showed up to the pavilion or whatever it was. And Tim Tebow gets up. They don't know who he is. He's just a white guy. All of them literally think that he's some rock star because he's white. You know, hey, a white guy's here. And so as he gets there and he preaches the gospel, he sees these three guys, these three kids running around. And if you've ever been to a third world country, there's always kids running around everywhere. But in this town, everybody was there listening to what this man had to say. 15-year-old kid. And these three boys are all running around, and it, it doesn't make sense. And so he's intrigued. And after he gets through the throng of people all wanting to touch him and say hi to him and ask him to pray for them, he walks out, and he's, he sees one of the three boys. And he wanders around with him. And he goes to this hut, and this little boy seems to be taking him there by his two fingers. This little hand is dragging him through the village. So he follows this little boy, and he get and he gets to this hut. And if you've ever been in one of those huts, like you have to humble yourself to get in. You're going to crawl through the dirt. You're going to get dirty and you're going to walk in and who knows what it's going to smell like in there. So he gets in there and there's two boys, the other two boys that were with him. And he's like, where were you guys? Why weren't you out there? And these boys are just excited to see him. And they were able to speak some English apparently because he understood what they were saying. And he said the, the one boy was stroking the arm of a little boy that was laying on a mat being affectionate with him. And the other boy had brought him. So there's one taking care of this boy, and there's another coming to get Tim Tebow. And, and he comes in there, and he's looking, and he doesn't even realize what's going on because he's kind of overwhelmed. And then he finally realizes the little boy laying on the mat has his legs on backwards. This little boy was born with his legs facing backwards. And so he said, you know, why weren't you guys at the, the good... We told you we had some good news to share. Why weren't you there? And he goes... Our principal at our school, he wanted to impress the white people that were coming, so he said that I wasn't very impressive, so I should stay home. 
So this little boy stays home. Obviously they didn't. They were still being little boys. They were kind of carrying him around. I picture them like the guys that took the, the, the man to Jesus and dropped him through the top of the hut. You know, like all the important people were there, but they wanted to be there and couldn't get in. And so Tim Tebow's in there, and he goes, you got to be kidding me. And so he talks with them, he spends time with them, and he goes, you guys should have been in the front row. That's what the gospel's about. Of such are the kingdom of God. These childlike faith, you know. They so because he wasn't welcome, Jesus sent him to them personally. And as he just sat there and talked with them, he get, and then all of a sudden he heard some noise outside, and it was his group of people. They had to leave because they were getting ready to go to the next town and preach the gospel again. And so he looked at the boys. He goes, I'm really sorry, but I have to leave. And they said, that's no problem. They said, we want to follow Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to pray with you. Will you pray with us? And so he prayed with them. They all received uh, Christ. They all received salvation. And instantly they got it because he goes, guys, I'm sorry I have to leave, but I'm so looking forward to seeing you guys in heaven. And the little boy with the legs turned around backwards looked at him, and he said, I can't wait to run with you in heaven. He got it. This is the kingdom. This is the hope. This is what we get to tell people about. Everything that was broken made right. Man, we make it about so many other things. And so in this story, I I share that with you just because it just touched me. I told my wife she was in tears. I'm like, I got to share this. This is what the kingdom's about. This is what we have to offer, this treasure. And we're all broken jars of clay, but we have this hidden treasure that changes the very future of people for eternity. He says, esteem those, know those, know people, know them, build real relationships, build, talk with people, um, make phone calls. He says, uh, recognize those who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. This isn't just talking about pastors, although I could uh, definitely benefit from all of your prayers. But anyone who is over you, that means, you know, somebody that's taller than you spiritually. I don't mean like in righteousness or look at me. I mean somebody that is a big brother, a big sister. We all need to have a Timothy that we invest in, but we also all need to have a Paul. We need to be a Paul for somebody, and we need to be a Timothy for somebody. We need to be invested in, and we need to invest in others. Otherwise, there's not another generation of faith. The, the Christian life is not that of, of just, you know, generation after generation. Nobody inherits salvation. We need to impart into others what we have learned from the Lord. And if you're further along than somebody, could be your three-year-old child, then you're further along than them and you need to invest in them. You need to pour into them the truths that God's shown you. Everyone's farther ahead than somebody else, everyone. And that's a good thing. Uh, But there will also be those who are farther ahead than you. Give opportunity for them to speak into your life. Now, he says, be at peace among yourselves. And this should speak for itself. We worship the king of peace. We ought to be a people of peace. He says, we exhort you, brethren, to warn those who are unruly. <laughs> there is warning for those who are rule breakers. Uh, people come in this fellowship and start doing all kinds of craziness. They will be called out in love so that they could be corrected. Warn those. Uh, you know, uh, many people, if you warn them, they'll say, judge not lest you be judged. Look, uh, we need to succumb to the judgment of the Lord. And many times he'll use others that are around us to call us out on things that we need to be changing about. 
but in love. And the idea is that we will be called out so that we can be healed, that we brought, be brought under the lordship of, of Jesus and we'd be corrected. And many times, and I say this, we should be strong enough as believers to correct our brothers and sisters in love. Because here's the deal, and I will tell you this because my pastor told me this. If it comes to the point where I have to deal with it as the pastor, they won't come back. Most of the time, if I correct someone, even in love, even in all the right ways, even if I'm doing right spiritually and I provide it correctly, if I have to deal with it and it gets past you guys and I have to deal with it many times, it will completely break them spiritually and they will no longer fellowship with the church. Now, that's on them. We are a society that does not receive correction without just completely going sideways. We don't want anybody telling us anything. But in the body of Christ, it's necessary for us to be comforted and encouraged and many times corrected. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. And if the Lord doesn't discipline you, you're not his. That's what Hebrews says. So if that's the case and someone in the Lord comes and corrects you, hey, receive it. It, there could be, even if there's just a little bit of truth to it, we need to be open to receiving that because the Lord wants to continually grow us. And growth comes through correction. My own daughter is learning that. And I'm learning that. As I see her rebelling against my commands, I go, wow, I wonder how many times the Lord's seen me like that. So we need to be willing to receive correction. He says, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted comfort them. I picture it like this. Those who are squeamish in the faith. Those who are like the fainting goat. You guys ever see one of those? Look it up on YouTube. It's hilarious. But there are those who know the Lord, who love the Lord, who are fainting goats. And, and when Satan comes, when temptation comes, it doesn't take much, and they just go sideways. They, they can't take it. He says, uh, don't despise them, Comfort them. Come up and be their biggest cheerleader. Uh, be their coach if that's what needs to happen. If they're being tempted or if they're being broken by little things, remember that you were once the same. Remember that there was a time where someone needed to come along inside aside you and encourage you. And, and in hindsight, it was a tiny thing, but at the time, it seemed huge. He says, help them. Don't despise them uphold the weak and be patient with all. Uphold the weak can be something as simple as helping someone that can't walk, right? But another way to uphold the weak is to recognize that each one of us could be the weak person, and someone might be upholding us at this very moment. Pray for them is the best way to uphold them. Another way to uphold them is to be with them in their hours of trial and brokenness and temptation. There are very many practical ways, and I could go over them, but you know the people in your life that are faint-hearted in the faith, and you know the people in your life that are weak. Strengthen them. Give opportunity. I, I am the worst about this, but I see my time as my time. But if the Lord lays somebody on your heart, pray for them, contact them. If you can't get a hold of them, go find them, because more than likely, they're struggling, because we all are. Go and see them. It can be a shot in the arm just knowing somebody's thinking about you. If you can't go to them, just let them know, I'm thinking about you. Because I was thinking about you, I prayed for you. And hey, 
here's this, you know, whatever it might be. It might be, you know, just a little thing, but just to show up and go, I was thinking about you, and so I just wanted to bless you, and here's, here's some zucchini from my garden, or whatever it might be, you know, whatever you have. Use it to bless someone. He says, be patient with all. And I believe this word in the Greek means all. Be patient with one another and be patient with people that don't know Jesus. They are not going to act the way they should. Don't be surprised. People in the faith are not going to act the way they should. Don't be surprised. Be patient. Why? Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you're not patient, here's another thing. You're not loving people. Man, that that hurts me because I've got a three-year-old and a 15-month-old, and and I'm I'm not patient. My natural inclination is not patience. It's get stuff done, and if you're not helping me, get out of my way. And what the Lord says is be patient. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is patient. I don't think it's coincidence that he names that first because he knows we're not. He says, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for others. We are not to pursue the good for only us, but also for others. So what's good for everyone is good for you. And it's going to cause you to have to exercise patience. It's going to cause you to have to say no to your own desires and your own will and to say yes to the Lord. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So in every situation, rejoice. Be happy and confident in the Lord. In every situation, pray without ceasing don't stop. And I'm guilty of this. First thing in the morning, I'll read my Bible. I'll pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hang up the phone. And then at lunchtime, hey, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful sandwich. Hang up the phone. Go about my day. And then in the evening, thank you, Lord, for this dinner. Hang up the phone. In Jesus' name, amen. And then I go to bed at night. Lord, thank you for being with me this day. Although I never talked to him other than when I was on the line. What he says is pray without ceasing. So it's almost like you're dialing them up, you're putting them on speakerphone, putting in your Bluetooth, if that's what you do. Although those are weird. I always think people are talking to me in Walmart, and then I'm like, oh, they got one of those things in their ear. But we can do that with the Lord, but we don't have the blink of light. You know, but to always be in communication means to leave the line off the hook, and as the day goes on, to pray. And I say that because um, we can pray without ceasing, and Jesus did it. And in John, he actually says this. Remember the story of Lazarus. Jesus was asked to come and heal Lazarus, and he didn't get there in time. Now, we see in other accounts that he did that on purpose. He waited at the will of the Father. He waited till Lazarus passed. And they thought, oh, man, it's too late. Jesus can't do anything. So then Jesus shows up, and it says in verse 38 of John chapter 11, Jesus groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench in there, for he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, he just starts praying. But notice what he prays. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. In other words, we've already been talking about this, Lord. We've already been talking about this, Father, and I thank you that you heard me. That's a promise. That's awesome. And then he says, and I know that you always hear me. In other words, I'm always talking to you, and I know you're always listening. But then he says, but because of the people who are standing by, I said, or I am saying this, that they may believe that you sent to me. So he's praying about what he's getting ready to pray, but he's also praying about what he's already prayed. So he's in constant communication with the Father, and because of that, he says this, Lazarus, come forth. Now we hear those words, and we see the result of those words, but there was much prayer leading up to those words. There was power in them because they were words that were completely yielded to the Father. So as he prays about this, he says, Lazarus, come forth. He said that knowing that it was going to happen, but he said it so that all that saw what happened, everyone would know that it was the Father that told him to do it. And so we, in the same manner, have this opportunity to constantly be in prayer over everything. It says, pray without ceasing. So that means when you're getting ready to go into the office to talk to your boss, I've done that. You just say, hey, Lord, I don't know what this is, but I'm kind of nervous. Be with me. Help me not to say anything dumb. You know, <laughs> help me to be a, a good witness. Help me to be someone who trusts in you and not whether my boss cares or not. You know, but we can pray without ceasing in every situation. You know, something tragic happens. And you're on the way to the hospital. We know how to pray without ceasing at that point, right? Why not in the daily stuff that we don't necessarily know what's coming? He says, pray without ceasing, rejoice always, and in everything give thanks. He doesn't say give thanks for everything. We've all had things that have happened that where we're like not thankful for it. But to look for the opportunity, look for something that we can give thanks to the Lord in. He says, in doing these things, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. He says, do not despise prophecies. Test all things and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So I believe what he's saying here is don't quench the Spirit. Don't stop the Lord's work in your life. I read a a little meme this week. I don't know what meme means, but it's like these little things on the internet that have words on them because we no longer just read things. We've got to have a picture to go with it. And I'm like that. I mean, I, I like books with pictures better than I like books with lots of words. But what it said was this. Um, I wrote it here somewhere. And since I can't find it, I'm very organized. Hmm. I'll I'll summarize it. What he said was, um, here it is. The Holy Spirit, his work is to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. The Holy Spirit's work is to remove everything from your life, kind of like, you know, when they make a statue and they take a chisel and they punch away, they remove the pieces that don't look like what they're trying to carve. And the Lord is making a masterpiece out of you and I. He's trying to reveal Jesus in your character and in your stature. You won't look like, maybe you won't be bearded, maybe you won't have, you know, a flowing robe or anything like that, but he wants to make your life present Jesus to the world. And he does that through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And one of the ways that he does that is through each other. So when he says, don't quench the Spirit, don't stop the Spirit's work of making you like Jesus, he says, do not despise prophecy. What is prophecy? I hear that word, and I used to hear that word and go, oh, that's like the Old Testament, or they would tell the future. Some guy would hear from the Lord, and he would speak to the people, and he'd tell something that was far in the distant future. Well, that's part of prophecy. But another part of prophecy is the foretelling of the Word of God, speaking God's truth into the lives of others. And so the foretelling of the Word is what I'm doing. I'm teaching the Word of God, and I'm speaking, I'm reading it, I'm giving the sense or the understanding, and helping, hopefully, so you can go apply it. Well, here's what happens. We go to church every week. I hear the Word of God. And so how do I receive it? Well, in Acts chapter 17, what it says is Paul left Thessalonica, and he went to Berea, another area. When he got there, he said, the people there were more noble than those who were in Thessalonia. Why were they more noble? Because they readily received the word of God. They were open to hearing it. They were letting it speak into their lives. But then what it says is that they tested it. They went and searched the scriptures after they heard it taught to see whether or not it was actually so. So they received it. They tested it. They ran it through the grid of, does it agree with Scripture? And if it doesn't, they kick it out and say that was junk, junk food. It's not even food. It's junk. They'd spit it out. But if it was, well, they willingly received it and let it take hold in their life. They let it nourish them and change them and strengthen them. So here's the deal. If we go to church every week, we can fall into the temptation to think, I heard the Word of God. I must be receiving it. But receiving it implies more than just hearing it with our ears. It implies that we've heard it with our heart and we are allowing it to teach us and to transform us. We're eating it. We're chewing on it. We're trying to understand it. We're trying to take the nutrients from it and let it transform us. Much like bread. You ever thought about it? Jesus is the bread of life. In the Old Testament, every day they were given manna in the desert to sustain them. And if they got enough to eat and they ate it, then they were sustained. But if they took too much and they didn't eat it, then it grew worms and it got nasty and stinky. Not just stale, but stenchful. So that's what the Word of God is for us. We can't keep it for another day to apply it. We need to eat it right now so it doesn't get stale. There's a shelf life. If God teaches you something, eat it right then. Apply it right then. Because over time, the intensity of the Lord speaking to you at that point will wane and it'll get stale and it'll no longer mean anything to us. So we'll miss out on it. We'll miss out on the nutrients. We'll miss out on the transformation. And so because of that, God says, don't despise my word, but receive it with all readiness to do it. And if you will do it, guess what's going to happen? You're going to remember it and then you'll be able to teach others. Psalm 51, David wrote that. He said, teach me, O Lord. Help me to repent. Help me to be taught by you so that I may lead others likewise. And so he says, don't despise prophecy. Test all things, though. Hold fast to what is good, but abstain from every form of evil. Form of evil means the appearance of evil. And I had a big, long story I was going to tell about that, but I'm running out of time. 
appearance of evil is just as important. It's not what gets us right before God. We don't want to just make the appearance that we're doing good. But at the same time, so that we don't stumble others, we need to avoid the appearance of evil. I heard of uh, one pastor that I listened to said he gets nervous when he buys IBC root beer and he's drinking it in public because he doesn't want anybody to think he's going out and boozing it up, you know. Um, when Kelly and I were dating, she would come over to my house in the evening sometimes and it would just be her and I. And uh, we were fine with this. We, we, had, we didn't think about the appearance of evil until one night she went to text me. Now, my name's Mike and my pastor's name's Mike. So Kelly went to text me when she got home and said, I was home safe, uh, had a nice time with you this evening, and I love you, smooch, 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 bye-bye, you know, or whatever she texted me. It was something for me. So my pastor gets it at 11 o'clock at night. Now, I'm a youth pastor at this time, and I'm also leading a Bible study at the, the skate park, which is a block away from my house. So I'm going in and teaching them about purity, and I'm going in and teaching them about Jesus' desires for our lives, and these, all these kids struggle with sexual impurity, and so, you know, we talked about it a lot, and they'd walk by my house, and they'd skateboard past my house to go home. Imagine what they thought when they'd see, that he's not married, whose car is that? That's his girlfriend's car. What? Now, we weren't doing anything, but that doesn't matter. It the world sees someone staying at someone else's house and it's past dark, you're going to make some assumptions that things are going on. Why not? You don't go on a diet and live in a donut shop. You don't. We were putting ourselves in a compromising situation, tempting ourselves beyond what we should be, but we were also putting off a bad witness, whether we were doing anything or not. And so uh, avoiding the appearance of evil. And as believers, we have... A, we have an obligation to the Lord to not put off the appearance of evil, but to be above reproach. And I always tell young couples that are getting ready to get married, that are living together, I will not marry you, and that's my stance, until you part ways and make it look like you're doing right. Uh, I can't, you know, I can't keep track of anything else. But if you're going to live together before you're married, it's just dangerous, and it puts off the wrong thing. And if I go and marry you, it implies that God's okay with that. And so that's my stance. And I'm not popular for that stance, by the way. But it's because of the appearance of evil. And so he says, abstain from every form or appearance of evil. Now, verse 23, we'll close with a blessing. He says, may the God of peace himself completely sanctify you. And may your whole spirit soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Now, I like this because is God in complete control? Yes. He's the one that's called us. He's the one that's faithful. Do I have a responsibility? Yes. I have a responsibility to let God have his way with me but he will also do it as I allow him. So God's sovereignty and my free will work together to form a solid Christian life. He says, brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. That's awkward. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be ready, read to the holy brethren. He says, brethren, pray for us. So Paul's not above asking for prayer. He needs to be upheld. He knows he's weak. 
He says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. This is like a father affectionately greets his children. He's, he longs to be with them. I give my children a kiss on the forehead all the time. I can't help it. They're so kissable. So Paul's not, he says, greet them with a holy kiss, a pure kiss, a kiss. Today we would give hugs or men with ladies side hugs, you know, not to be inappropriate, but just to show affection through touch, appropriate touch. And he says, I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the holy brethren. It was meant for our hearing as well. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So he closes with God's grace. We'll need it. We need God's grace personally. We need it to hand out. We need, uh, and to live the life that we've been called to is not easy. We can't do it on our own. We need God's grace. Our salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Our living out salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. He says, comfort and strengthen each other by doing this stuff. These are ways that we can help each other grow in the faith. You don't have to get up and teach a Bible study. Comfort the weak. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Strengthen one another. Pray without ceasing. Seek God's best for yourself and for others. And all these things will happen. So let's pray. Father, I once again thank you for the patience of this group. I thank you for your word that is so able to strengthen us. It's able to keep us within our, the bounds of where you want us. It's able to correct us, to encourage us, to grow us. Father, may each one of us be hands and feet for you to speak into each other's lives. Lord, help us as we come to fellowship as we go and meet with one another outside, as we see one another at a baseball game. Lord, wherever we're at, help us always to be open to hearing from you, to grow for ourselves, and to strengthen one another. And Father, as we do that, Lord, help us not to despise the possibility that you would speak to us through one another, but also, Lord, help us to be wise. Help us to test all things according to your word to see if they truly are a word from you. And as we do that, Lord, grow us as a body, grow us as individuals, strengthen your testimony in this valley and to the ends of the earth. Father, we want to be that building that you are putting together, assembled, that brings you glory and is a testimony to your faithfulness. We look forward to your return, but we want to occupy and be faithful until you come. We want to be presented righteous and pure before you when you return. So, Father, help us to be diligent, to aspire to these things, so that you would be made famous in the lives of our families, our schools, and our church, and ultimately for your glory. Lord, thank you for the teachers and the students and the parents that have been diligently working this week. Help us not to fall to the temptation or to the lie that the way that we find rest is by getting more sleep. Help us to be not neglectful of assembling ourselves together to stir one another up to love and the good works. Thank you that you use us. We love you. I thank you so much for being our King and our Savior. And uh, Father, I just pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, empower us to live throughout this week your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.